for me, it's a funny situation. These problems, they're homemade. That's the beauty part of life, that you're surrounded with issues and you have to stay in contact with them instead of avoiding them. That was John Kerner, and this is Nordic Portraits. John Kerner is an internationally renowned visual artist, primarily working with painting, installation, ceramics and glass. Noted for his distinct use of colour and unique depiction of characters, his work often deals with contemporary issues that invites the viewer to reflect on political, social and existential questions. In the year 2000, just two years after graduating from the Royal Danish Art Academy, John received the prestigious Carnegie Art Award, and his work has subsequently been acquired by Aros Museum of Modern Art, Moderna Museet Stockholm, and the Tate London, amongst many others. John, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. I wondered if we could start by going back to the late 1970s, John, where, as a young boy of 12 years old, you had your first encounter with creating a piece of art, although maybe not aware of it at the time. You were inspired by an encounter you had with a chopper motorcycle and decided to make one of your very own. And I wondered what that experience was like as a boy in Lolland, in regional Denmark, embarking on a project like that. (laughs) But that was heaven. At that time, I was a youngster and the 70s were like heaven, much different from nowadays. And by different, I mean that lots of people were very open-minded and lots of drinking, lots of alcohol. My parents used to run an inn and there was a lot of customers. Among them, lots of weirdos and alcoholics and uh, funny people. So now and then people were passing by Strangers on motorbikes, and um, I must have seen Easy Rider, I guess, at that time. And of course, I had in mind that I should have one similar, but I wasn't old enough to drive a real motorbike. So I came up with the idea to design my own bicycle, which could look like a chopper. And I stole a pack of facts at my parents' inn in order to pay that craftsman, an older boy or something, but he could make the metal construction with the long front of the bike. That was beautiful. So I was the only one, I guess, on the whole island, perhaps in the country, I don't know, with a bike like that. So the next step was to paint it, and that was my favorite It was yellow. No joking. It was yellow. (laughs) It was yellow and green. And it happens that I was driving around and the moment when the tourists, there was a lot of sailing tourists in that harbor front place. We were, all these tourists, they looked at me. 
I wasn't that tall at that moment. So, but still, I must have looked very cool. I'm sure that I was driving around on a chopper bike. Now you see them. They're very smart in urban environments. You see these very smart choppers. But at that time, there was no bikes with a front with a chopper. So that was fun. So growing up with your parents owning and operating this inn, you come into contact with all these local characters. What do you think that taught you about people and how you observe human behavior today? That that you can freak out quite easily. It was like a free spirit in a way that I saw all these characters dropping by the inn, the harbor, and having fun. At that time, alcohol was very normal. It's just as an adult that I, when I look back, I see the alcohol, but at that time it was really normal that you can drink and drive at the same time. And people were crashing and sleeping strange places and acting funny, dancing very funny and puking funny, I guess. And I do remember that some people were having funny suits on. There was one guy, he was driving his moped in a blue suit, light blue suit. And that was beautiful. And he got beaten up. It was night and there was blood all over this beautiful suit. And I still remember the combination of blood and light blue as a beautiful atmosphere. Or, I mean, you could easily be beaten up. And that was part of it. So if you were dancing with the wrong one or approaching the wrong person or something, you could easily be beaten up outside and then one hour later you will dance again. And that was the 70s. I was just a small boy, but I was watching everything and it was quite normal to act like this. So I thought it was beautiful and uh, I didn't mind and it didn't scare me at all. I do remember that there was a motorcycle crashing in front of the inn. He went really fast. Uh, it was purple. You don't see a purple motorbike nowadays, but it was purple. And me and the rest of the guys, we just stand, looked at that motorbike burning. And suddenly there was a huge explosion when the gas went on. And... Of course, it was very dramatic and all the adults were standing and looking and we were having fun. Today, it would be the front of the news that the kids were standing and looking at this and the owner of the motorbike was standing and looking at it. So what happened is that he was going really fast in front of us and he crashed and I don't know if he got hurt or not, but no one really cared. So he was just standing next to us five minutes later and looking at his motorbike burning, and it was fun. And today, the police would have been there, but we are in a part of the country where there was like 20 kilometers for the next police station, so the police never came. So I guess it was, it was, it was a place that was really fun. And I guess it was all the weirdos that were living in this 
neighborhood. And then on the other side, there was all these old fishermen. Yeah. Would you say it was an open-minded community? Kind of. I mean, it was a bit more tough than nowadays. I mean, there was a lot of funny people, lonely people living. So there was one guy, he was part of the inn daily. And he lived by himself, had a job. And when he had time off, like a summer vacation, the only difference was that he didn't do the dishes. And he was proud of that. And everyone knew that, that he would buy the plastic dishes for that week or two. So he said, now I'm off, I'm not supposed to do the dishes. And no one really had any money. And that was the beauty part, I guess, of that society that we didn't see all the rich guys. So it's not about money. Mm. It was about being proud and having fun and uh, smiling and dancing. And I like that. So then when you reach your later teenage years and you move to Copenhagen, to East Lensbrugge with your family, what sort of a contrast did you experience? I was left alone. I was 18 at that time. I was, I didn't have anyone. I had a cousin in Copenhagen. That's about it. That summer, I was an exchange student in Ohio in between. And um, when I came to Islandsburg, it was a strange place. It was still very industrial. Now they tear the whole thing down. And now it's a fancy place to live. But at that time, I was walking around on my own, looking at this urban city and and trying to get it. And felt very much alone, I guess. So uh, that's my start in Copenhagen. <laughs> I was 18. And I think I saw an advertising in the newspaper that you could rent a part of a studio so that was more or less my entrance to the art world and to Copenhagen. Because of that, I met with other people. That was my first friends at all in Copenhagen. Hmm. And of course, you took with you that work ethic that had been instilled in you growing up in Lolland. When you then trained and worked as a carpenter as your first profession, I'm curious if you already knew at that stage that art was your calling or if you had ambitions to work as a career craftsman. Hmm. You know, I guess I was born for the arts. <laughs> I know it's a cliche, but I could easily have continued with the carpentry, building houses, and I didn't have any trouble with that. You know, while I was educated as a carpenter, I did share that studio I was talking about with other people doing arts, falling asleep in a chair at night because I was really tired. You get tired. You get up at six working as a carpenter. You get tired. So it's a bit difficult doing paintings at night because you're exhausted. And that was one time I did try to escape. I went out partying and then I met at work at 7 o'clock in Faum, that's north of Copenhagen, at 7 o'clock, without sleeping at all. I went out drinking 
And that's perhaps the toughest day ever. That's really difficult to not sleep a whole night and then work the following day. This is just an example of trying to combine the two issues. You know, the night before started out in the studio doing some paintings and then we went out drinking and partying. And so that was a challenge that I lost, I guess. But the idea of building or constructing as a carpenter comparing to the life of being an artist is so different from each other that it's hard to compare. But I guess I was meant to be an artist. I just didn't know. So the moment I got the moment of my life, then I saw the possibility to start out part-time artist. I took the opportunity. And so I would still mix the two. I would work as a carpenter four days a week and two days a week I would be an artist. And I think lots of people do that around the globe, have two, three jobs. Yeah. You're also well known for your installation work. And I wondered if that's a way of you still tapping into that carpenter's soul. I think, for example, of the gym bar that you crafted in 2015, this grand structure that requires people of, dare I say, average height to climb and retrieve their drink from the bar. For someone like yourself at 207 centimetres, it's probably not such a reach, but <laughs> or the wave skateboard halfpipe that you constructed for your Alzlmang Problema or Always Many Problems exhibition at Charlottenburg. Are these structures where you encourage interaction with the viewer a conscious way of you breaking down the barrier between your art and those observing? Perhaps, yeah. I knew how to do a construction like that. So I could imagine a construction like that. Yeah, I definitely take my former professional life into my art sometimes. Mostly when things are to be constructed. And especially with wood, I still have that love affair with the wood. Uh, I can't let go. When you touch a lovely piece of oak or something similar it's so beautiful that it is a strong experience to smell if a craftsman is working with wood and there's the smell of it it's a part of it and um, also the time schedule for a craftsman is interesting i think lots of people forget about that that if you get early up it's a different approach to life you see the sun Sometimes, especially here in the Nordic countries, you see the sun <laughs> because half of the year it's dark outside. So as a craftsman, you actually see the sun rises and goes down at the same day before you're back home. So being a craftsman is actually a beautiful way of living because most of the time you're outside feeling that part of life and not in an office behind a screen. So I still love that approach to life. And uh, Perhaps I do try to imagine that I could bring in that kind of atmosphere into my installations, mm. unconscious perhaps sometimes. The word problem 
is synonymous with your body of work and your life as an artist. Your atelier is called Problem Studio, and this theme is a touch point throughout your work. How would you yourself define the term problem, John? Oh, it's it's for lots of people, billions in this world. It's very negative. And I love the negative. And it's not about finding some food and eat. It's a human construction. And it's beautiful that, that you can actually define something as a problem. Why is it so? What is a binspen? Do you know that word in Danish? Yeah. Limitation or obstacle? Yeah. I hate the fact that a lot of people are trying to limit themselves. It's stupid. I believe so that when you pronounce a certain issue, situation or whatever as a problem, lots of people are limiting themselves, unconscious, not knowing what they're doing. And I find that rather stupid. So... I try to avoid these situations myself. And for me, it's a funny situation. These problems, they're homemade. And um, of course, I'm aware that the crisis in Ukraine is not homemade, but I try to operate in terms of homemade problems. That's what I find interesting. And giving them these problems a three-dimensional shape or whatever, a shape that I created, it's a bit of a intellectual or physical way of thinking, I guess. It would be the same situation if I should try to create a love affair or something. Lots of people would draw a heart or something if they should try to imagine love, perhaps. That's very common. And yeah, I picked a different word, problem. And I, I, I'm supposed to try to illustrate or to work out what a problem looks like. So that's the challenge, I guess. And I collect them. Still the same, more or less shape. An egg, kind of an egg standing up. And of course, there's different ideas to what it needs to have an egg standing up. They can have a nap. A problem can easily have a nap. Or they can take a walk or just stand in the horizontal line looking at you. I guess that's my favorite. <laughs> they approach you. If you keep walking, you will find a problem standing in front of you. That's a beauty. But I choose to shape and I still, <laughs> I still love the fact that I can create these problems and I, I still find it very funny. Hmm. So essentially it is a part of the human condition. Yeah, it's part of you being alive with a touch of something, a homemade situation. But you seem to also view it not just as a limitation, but that problems can also encourage forward motion or lead to progress. Yeah, of course, it leads to a kind of an understanding that if you admit that you are dealing with problems. I guess no one admits, or everyone admits that they do have problems, including myself. And at the same time, I really try to be together with these problems, staying alive with these problems. So 
that's the beauty part of life that you're surrounded with issues and you have to stay in contact with them instead of avoiding them. So it can be seen as a kind of fuel for further life. I like that term. Would you consider yourself an optimist by nature? Absolutely. I do deal with big issues now and then, else I guess I wouldn't be alive. And um, the glass is half full, definitely. You will probably see that in some of my works as well, that I have been considering a lot that I have that much daylight in my works. And that's an important issue, the daylight, which is the thing I'm missing at the moment. Because it's so grey outside, so... Um... <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that your work tends to deal with bigger issues, and one great example of that was your 2008 exhibition, War Problems, which comprised 16 paintings, each depicting one of the 16 Danish soldiers that had lost their lives in the conflict in Afghanistan. I just wondered what you were looking to explore through that series and what was the main impression you were wanting to leave the viewer with through that work? Yeah, it is a tough moment for lots of people living with a war or understanding a war. And at that time, that was perhaps a conflict in Afghanistan that was in its starting point. I guess the situation now in Afghanistan is more or less the same. Hmm. So the Western Union have been there, done that, and still the conflict hasn't gone. That's more or less proof that it's a challenge for the Western democracy trying to solve every single case. And it's a tough one. It's a very problematic issue for the governments around the globe, at least the ones that were part of the conflict or sending soldiers there. So I know that it's not black and white, but it is very difficult for especially the Western world to understand, feeling not able to solve these situations. And you could easily find 10 new conflicts in Africa that hasn't been solved. And these could easily be new situations for the Western world to try to be part of. And I know I'm very cynical at the moment, but it is difficult. It's a difficult situation with these conflicts, with these disasters in Africa. I feel them a lot. I really feel with the countries in Africa that they happen to be left alone in many cases and the conflict with Ukraine at the moment is very interesting because they look like us that's the difference so um, the empathy perhaps feels stronger and um, I don't think it's about politics it's about relations and what people actually care about so there's probably a stronger connection between the people that look like yourself. And if you want to solve the world, it would be something else you have to, to do. 
<laughs> if that's the case. Uh, but that's a bit more tricky. But these conflicts are very interesting. And uh, that's a great amount of politics and economic situations. That's another day. Perhaps we have to continue <laughs> with that discussion. But uh, that was some of the reasons why I took part in that. And doing it with paintings kind of was very interesting to do a tryout if I could paint an issue on a piece of canvas instead of writing a letter or doing a speech or whatever. So that was my aim. Hmm. And to that end, when you were approached by the crown prince and crown princess to paint a mural for the newly renovated Frederick VIII Palace in Amelienborg, did you know from that very moment that you wanted to depict the conflict in Afghanistan? No, because I tried out. I was asked. And the first painting, they refused it. So, uh, as an artist, I mean, they were the clients. They asked me to do a painting that could hang in the palace together with other artists. And uh, I thought it was a beautiful approach to contemporary art that the couple wanted to decorate or hang contemporary art in a Baroque house. They were moving in. It was a new generation in the royal palace and it was beautiful. I was so pleased they asked me and I guess I really wanted them to be happy. So of course it's a bit tricky when you are asked to do a painting and they refuse to have it. At the same time they were saying, please do a new one or do some sketches and I did some sketches and they didn't like them either so uh, it happens that I said okay then I will do a new painting in my studio and what was that depicting John the first painting ah oh, that's that's a secret okay sorry <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't want to get you in any trouble but but uh, it was done directly as a painting on the wall but at that time, there was like an opening situation where the palace were open for the public for like two months or something. So it was an exhibition. And since my painting was gone, they tear it down from the wall. In these old palaces, they have a canvas, stretch it out on the complete wall. And so it was not directly painted on the stone. So there was actually a situation where we could exchange the one that had been teared down with a new one. So I got the opportunity to do a new painting in my studio and they liked it and we exchanged it. Yeah, perhaps I had to convince them that it was a good idea to do a war situation. But they were happy with it. And uh, I think special uh, Frederick, he's pleased with it. I just wondered whether that gives you a sense of Maybe pride's not the right word, but satisfaction that as an artist who deals with broader issues, you were able to stamp a moment in time that acknowledges the sacrifices that were made Absolutely. in Afghanistan. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so pleased that I can fulfill their expectations and my work is there. It was a bit difficult or whatever. I mean, the media also were interested in the conflict, but I'm really pleased that it's now hanging there. Yeah. Your work in general often tends to depict figures without facial attributes or detailed limbs. 
And I wondered whether that was part of what you were speaking to earlier, whereby we tend to only identify ourselves with like types. So the fact that we here in Europe more naturally identify with Ukrainians and their plight because of their physical appearance. Is that a conscious technique you employ in order to invite the viewer into the story you're telling? Yeah, absolutely. It is a dialogue exhibiting at least that's the way I see it. So I'm definitely trying to invite the viewer into the work or the atmosphere or the subject. And that's different ways of doing that. I guess I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the best way of inviting people. And it points to that I do pick the pictures or the constructions in my works with that in mind that this is a situation where we could share something so I guess I really want to share stuff my observations or works are meant to be shared in a way so I'm very interested in picking something an object or a subject that is known I'm not trying to find some things that are unknown deep down in the cellar. I really want to stay on the surface where we meet or where others then may have an opinion or, um, for instance, Ukraine. I mean, I guess everyone has an opinion about the situation. That would, for me, be interesting to consider to do a kind of work that relates to that situation. Because we are lots of people that do have the same interest or we do share the, the moments. So you take the term contemporary art quite literally. Yeah. Um, I guess so. It could be light. It could be the issue. I mean, at the show I have at the moment, it's the glaciers. That has my interest. And I do believe that we have that in common that we do care about the glaciers and it might be very direct, it might be very normal, but on the other hand, why not go in that direction since we have that in common? So the thing is that in five years or in 10, it might be seen differently. It might not be that obvious a subject because things at that time are changed or Perhaps we have something else that we really share. So being in this moment is also a moment where you actually look back in history. That's contemporary. When you ask me, that is that you are in a specific moment of now, but who is supposed to act in now? You act because of history, and that is contemporary that you are able to act, you know how to eat, you know how to cook because of history. That's how it works. So a contemporary art piece is supposed to be seen also in 10 years and still be kind of strong. Hmm. Yeah, I was really curious about that because in 2017, you had a full retrospective to coincide with your 50th year. You are really good connected. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I just wondered, in relation to that, what it was like for you to go back 
through your body of work. I don't know if that's something you do regularly, but to actually curate in what was a really big space, 1,000 plus square meters, what was that like for you to curate your own work given that you often deal with issues of the time? Yeah, Yeah, that was fantastic. I mean, getting the opportunity to do that. And some of them I'm very proud of, the works, about identity, about being human and brave. I think lots of people are brave. It's not easy to be a youngster these days. You have to act, you have to work, you have to find something that you connect with. And I guess the reason I'm saying is that when viewers are looking at my works, I definitely want to make sure that a work that is 20 years old still have an effect or hopefully still have an impact on them because of something they can relate to. That would be the goal for lots of artists, I guess, but it's not every work you look at that has that content. And I'm very keen to make sure that it works. And with that retrospective of my show, the one you mentioned, I believe that there were some of the works that could work out of that idea that you can still consider these works as important. Some of them were abstract and some were connected to realism, especially with the paintings that related to prostitution or war or something. I for sure picked these subjects because I know that there will still be a conflict in 20 years. I find it very important to humans to to deal with that. And the same with uh, working with prostitution. It must be... I did some research before the paintings. I know that it's a, a tough job and everyone can relate to that. It's important that you see works like that. Mm. Whilst you look to start a conversation, John, your work strikes me as very even-handed and non-judgmental. I look, for example, to your 2015 exhibition, Family Party, where you're examining the role that alcohol plays in modern Danish society. Is the importance of not judging people through your work something that you need to remain conscious of? Or is that just a natural part of who you've become no, as a person? it's just because I find it more interesting. If I judge everyone, of course it's a statement. By not judging everyone... I might be very naive, but I do have in mind that it might be even more interesting because I don't judge people. I don't show their faces all the time. I believe it's a quality, but I might be wrong. Yeah, again, these are things to share. I do hope that they are, I guess, more easy to share. And it's interesting what kind of works people actually find interesting. Two, three years ago, I did a painting of a couple standing on the top of Jutland. It's actually two friends of mine. They're standing on Grenen, the beach where two oceans actually meet each other. And for Danes, there's a lot of feelings standing in that position with your legs wide open. So the rumor says that you're standing in two different oceans at the same time. I was there as a kid and also as an adult and I like the moments like that, that keeps people smiling. I mean, of course they do a selfie, 
But it's funny that we share these moments of being joyful. So simple. It don't require anything. It's not about money. It's it's about standing in bare feet in two different oceans. I like these moments. They're so simple. It's so easily done. It's been done for centuries. And it's still, it's working. And it's for free. And so I couldn't escape doing that painting. And I'm very curious to see if people actually find it interested or not. It might be too <laughs> naive or too stupid, but it works. Lots of people were interested in that painting, so of course I'm proud of that. And it was actually not that easy to do. There was even a television crew that were filming me while I was painting, and it was a challenge, but I think it makes sense that I don't need a smiling person on that painting. It's more the idea of a situation that lots of people are aware of and do have a very beautiful moment or memory out of it. So that can also be a situation where you actually do have something in common. Of course, it's a history that combines or connects us but it works and I'm aware of it and um, I'm trying to research in that. It's so simple. Yeah. Just as we draw to a close, John, I was particularly interested in a recent project of yours, Cosmopolitan Superfruits, which you showed at MOCAD in Detroit and then in London at Victoria Miro, where your work depicts the choices that we're confronted with on a daily basis on so many levels. Can you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you first had the inspiration to explore this idea? Ah, oh, I was in the supermarket and it's so joyful. I mean, you're hungry. <laughs> you want to go um, find something quick or uh, you are interested in finding the right tomatoes or whatever. Many entrants into the history of food or the taste of food or whatever. So you find yourself in this fancy supermarket and next to you, you'll find the special imported olives from Greece or should I take them from Turkey or whatever. So it's a situation where you really are defining yourself as a human modern person. Because I'm in a situation where I can choose between the orange from Israel of the one from Spain and there's the smell and it's a luxury and it's beautiful and then I just started to look at where all these goods came from and then I as they do in the true crime scenes in television I followed the money <laughs> and discovered that fruits and everything is shipped from one part of the world to another and you being in the center is very much about being a cosmopolitan, I guess. So it's another look at the human behavior. And it's not being a moralist. It's just a question of finding my legs in this world and looking at the situation, how it works. I still find it extremely interesting to see how people next to you in the supermarket choose between the products 
on a good day, on a bad day, on the price, the quality, and the outlook of it. What looks more shiny than the other ones, the green apples or the red? These are the moments that are joyful, being a human. So I just try to concentrate while I'm in the supermarket. Instead of running around, I just trying to feel it. And that's where the idea came to do that show, super continental cosmopolitan fruit idea, that you can actually, whether you are in Detroit or Copenhagen, we have something in common. And we shared the same oranges from Spain. That's interesting. So, yeah, I guess it's about politics, but it's also about human behavior and everyone wants to be cosmopolitan. Why is it so? <laughs> Because of the history, I don't know. We want to be very important and uh, I guess we are very important. So, uh, that's beautiful. Are we important? Uh, I'm taller than the rest. <laughs> I'm a tall guy and um, I was just in Paris and everyone looks at me and I take it as a valuable thing that I must be important since everyone is looking at me uh, we all have our issues and um, and then I smile back and then sometimes there's somebody smiling at me so and um, then we meet and talk and that's beautiful hmm. Just a final question for you, John. I couldn't let you go without asking you about this. You were on record for saying that when you were a young boy of 10 or 11, you had an encounter with a UFO in your hometown in Lolland. Yeah. And I know you grew up going to a Catholic school. You've talked about the beauty and banality of life, but there's also this spiritual dimension that lies beneath your work. And I wondered how you would describe your relationship to spirituality or the unknown, as a wise or mature man of 50-odd today? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely believe in the larger world, or a larger world, and that contains also UFOs, definitely. And about the spiritual moments, I believe that it's much more beautiful than you actually believe. Since we like the same orange, that is the most fantastic part. And that's the construction that it's really hard to pass a red apple hanging in front of you on a tree in a garden without grabbing it or benching it. If it's really beautiful, you have to mention it or talk to the person next to you about that red apple or the ocean or whatever. That is the spiritual moments. Not for me. I mean, when I'm in India, I smile to the Indians and they smile back to me. Uh, I'm not trying to connect with the religion in India. I'm trying to connect with the smile. That's how it works. And I do feel it. And I can see they feel it as well. So that's the way I'm constructed and uh, that's the way it's meant to be, I'm sure, that we are supposed to feel each other and that's, that's how you connect. Well, 
your work very much does encourage us to connect with both it and each other. So I thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights about your career and your life so candidly with us today. Great. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.